Do you want to have impact and purpose without disrupting your life or leaving your day job? Podcasting may be the perfect fit for you, your experience, and your voice. Sign up for my upcoming free course where you will learn how to start podcasting using your unique voice, create a platform in four weeks, get access to resources, and more. Go to www.disruptingbalance.com slash podu. That's P-O-D-U to sign up now. Hello and welcome to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. It's me, I'm your host, a multicultural mama, wife, and leader. And here is where we amplify the stories of multicultural women who are unraveling from tradition to make the switch in work, well-being, and winning. I made the switch. Former professional actor turned lawyer turned education executive, and I'm not done yet. Join in on the conversation and learn how you can unravel from your stuff to make the switch, disrupt balance, and win. Melissa Kung is a rule follower, but has learned along the way to make her own rules. She is pursuing a life and career outside of other people's boxes. Growing up as a Cuban-Chinese-American, she often found that others tried to define her by placing her in their own identity boxes, oftentimes leaving Melissa to wonder whether or not she was Cuban enough or Chinese enough. But with a strong sense of family and a value system built on the respect of authority and elders, Melissa has been able to blaze a career path in corporate finance and develop meaningful connections along the way. The self-proclaimed Cubanese and millennial, who has often been the only at the table, takes pride in mentoring others to help them understand the necessity of owning their own career and avoiding being put in other people's boxes. So hello and welcome back to the Disrupting Balance podcast. I am so glad you joined me for this new episode in a new season of a new year. And in our guest chair today, we have Melissa Kung, who is here with us. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining me. For those who don't know, Melissa and I are totally B-school chums, and that's business school. Hey, hey. (laughs) So uh, Melissa agreed to join me today, and I'm so excited. We've got a great conversation in store, and we're going to jump right in. So Melissa, tell us all, what is your story? Sure. Um, I will actually start off by sharing that this is my story of a biracial Jersey girl who has navigated through the written and unwritten rules of life to charter success. So um, I am a proud Cubanese. (laughs) That was the one word my sisters and I came up with that represented our ethnicity. And what I mean by that is I am biracial. I am 50% Cuban and I'm 50% Chinese with a strong Cuban mama and an ever wise Chinese dad. And I'm also one of four kids and we are the first American born generation of our family. So growing up, there weren't a lot of other biracial kids or kids that looked like us. We were quote unquote mixed. And I'm talking of a time where if you can remember this, you had to choose one box for your ethnicity on standardized exams and applications. And what's interesting is that it wouldn't be until I was 17 
where at one of the five major university applications, I finally felt recognized on a piece of paper because mm-hmm. I could choose being biracial or multiracial. So going back to when I was a kid, um, I would always get asked, what are you? It's funny because when I answer I'm American, <laughs> the follow-up is typically immediately, no, what are you? Mm-hmm. And I realized it's because they don't know what box to categorize me in. And people would have a way of saying you look more Spanish or your hair is Chinese. And even from other Spanish or Asian kids, there were times where I wouldn't feel Cuban enough or Chinese enough. And as a kid, you don't know how to respond, right? You feel defensive, you feel sad, you feel bewildered sometimes, especially when someone that's telling you which group you belong in doesn't have any background or affiliation with either of those ethnicities. And so at times it felt like I had an identity crisis and I was struggling Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. So Cubanese was that one word my sisters and I would say to each other because it reflected who we are, which is a melding of fantastic cultures and ethnicity, right? Cubanese, you're Cuban and Chinese. And it took some time for me to stop focusing on which culture I most identified with or sometimes which culture I felt bad betraying because I wasn't owning up to that sometimes and really just start focusing on being me. So look, I want to look at, look at the time when you were growing up as a child, because you talked, you started this with the dilemma you have as a biracial woman and Mm -hmm. at the time a biracial child. Do you recall the moment when you realized you were different? And if you do, what was that experience? Honestly, it was when I was young. It was when I was a kid. Um, Even in elementary school, I was different. And I grew up in a place that was diverse. It's not like there was lack of diversity, but I think it was just the lack of biracial and multiracial kids. Like it was almost kind of like, you're not, you're not this, like you're a combination, if that makes sense. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, it was pretty young where you kind of have to explain to people, right? Like I'm Cuban and I'm Chinese and I'm 50, 50, and I don't identify with one more than the other. I'm both. What was your perspective based on the culture around grades, knowing that you are part Chinese and then the stereotypes around that? Yeah, I, I, I joke. I'm really, I did not get that gene where I was good at standardized tests. <laughs> that did not, I was not graced with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think from my perspective, you know, as you go through elementary school, it's a little bit different, right? It's not so much about grades, it's about kind of learning. And then I think in middle school, you're just trying to make it by, right? With that transition period. And in high school, that's kind of where I realized for me that it was a little bit beyond grades. Um, but to co- counter that, it was about leadership roles and then getting involved with different organizations to try and um, make a difference and make an impact. But my upbringing growing up is that I remember even in college, I shared with my dad, I was like, the teacher didn't curve. That's why I got a C and he was supposed to curve. And my dad was like, that, no, you, that doesn't even matter. Even if it was a curve, you still did not achieve what you should have done. And so from that perspective, grades was always something that was, um, that was valued and it was top of mind. And so that's why I mentioned, you know, when I went to B school, I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make everyone proud. I'm going to do all A's in an Ivy league. And what was really interesting about that was when I shifted, um, and a couple of things too on that is my mom, one of the things she always taught me was focus on yourself, not on what others are doing. And so 
I focus on being the best version of myself. And I say that because even though I wasn't focused on grades, I never lost sight of trying to be the best version of myself and performing well. Mm -hmm. It's just that if I didn't get an A plus, that was okay. Right. And I share that because I kind of trust in that type of mantra. And I say that because at the end of the two-year experience, while I focus on the performance of myself and doing the best that I could while in, in, in grad school, I ended up graduating with distinction. Mm-hmm. And so that was a pretty cool thing because it was like, I, I was focusing on myself, not so much on the A plus, A plus, A plus. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to when you put that energy into something, it's definitely going to manifest itself. Yeah. And so from that standpoint, it's, it's kind of that thing where it's, um, I was able to experience balance and success, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I was raised with certain values too, that sometimes became blind spots to the unwritten rules of the business world. So I preface that by saying, you know, my parents raised my siblings and I to be ambitious, to work hard, to get far and to be humble. And I was very fortunate to start my career in corporate finance. Mm. Five years in my career, I wanted to become a manager and express Mm -hmm. this to my director. And here I am killing my goals and objectives, thinking my work would speak for my potential. So then why finance? How did that all happen? So finance happened. um, Funny story. So (laughs) I decided to go to Penn State for the undergrad. And at the time I was thinking I was going to do marketing or business. And I soon realized that marketing maybe wasn't the best school at the time to go to for marketing. And I think from a grades perspective, they were okay in some of the other ones. And accounting was the one where, quite honestly, it made sense to me, like it clicked the most. And that's actually not where I was thinking I would go, but ultimately landed. And the reason why I ended up in corporate finance is because I had a couple of experiences, one where I I did a co-op six-month internship experience with an employer that I'm still with. And it kind of showed the fun ways of how you can use accounting into finance where it was tangible, meaning that like, okay, the product that I'm working on is in the store and I identify with that. And it's having this impact on patients and consumers. And that to me was exciting because it was almost like a way where I was working in finance, but then I was able to work in other functions like a marketing finance or uh, supply chain and get to see all those things. Was there another side to your academic or not even academic, but the other side of you, the social component, was she driving other interests or did you know for sure that this was the route you wanted to take? So if you were to ask, what did I think I was going to do? I thought I was going to be a marine biologist (laughs) and I was going to go to a university in Hawaii and, and really kind of focus on that. And I I love marine life and I love the ocean life. And the reason why I didn't go that route was because my, my dad kind of sat me down and said, okay, you need to figure this out because they're two very different paths. So you're going to write a list. Pros and cons. And by the way, he still has me do this to this day when it comes to big life decisions. Wow. Pros and cons on the decision to be a marine biologist and pros and cons on going into business. And so we're talking about them. And he says, well, is marine biology going to provide? And I preface this with also saying I'm not trying to knock an industry, but is this going to provide you with some of the things you want in life? And then (laughs) I think in true fashion, the one question comes out now, 
and which which career path is going to also set you up to be financially independent where you could also take care of your family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's where it kind of goes back to the sense of culture and value like i have a very strong tie to my family and very strong family value and that did you know influence a little bit into the decision where i you know where i decided to fully pursue business yeah so let's switch it up just a bit. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned how you were just a person who followed the rules, right? And in following the rules, you thought that would kind of get you where you wanted to be or make you the star or get you to the top, but you got advice that said otherwise. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that pattern for you of following the rules. Like how did that work for you? before the point where your colleague mentioned you to mention that you should do it differently. Yeah. And I would say that, um, you know, part of that is the concept of working hard, right? And if you work hard, you will get recognized. And I think that there's truth to that, but I think there is an aspect of how you let people know you are working hard and you're doing well and how you are managing essentially your brand. And so when it comes to kind of following the rules, I think that there is this path of, okay, you meet expectations, you exceed expectations, great, that's going to get recognized. And I think with me in that experience, what I thought, what I was raised and then kind of what I thought coming into my career, turns out that I was missing that component on getting advocates, on highlighting and showcasing who I was to other people, because when it comes to some of these decisions from an organizational perspective, it's a, it's a table full of people that are making this decision. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not always that one person who's on your side Mm -hmm. and you kind of have to get that, that advocacy, that exposure. I think the other thing though, too, was that, you know, for me, if I'm working hard and my manager sees that it's reflecting in my performance, it's reflecting into the, the feedback that I'm getting but then there's that piece that I'm not ready according to the timelines that I think I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And there's a disconnect. And I think there's this notion that sometimes your supervisor will have your best interest. And don't get me wrong, this person was a very nice guy. And I'm sure that he did have my interest, but it wasn't really my interest. It was what he thought I should do or I should be. Mm-hmm. And from that standpoint, that's where I think understanding that you own your career is a very important concept, especially when you're starting out. You can't always assume that someone is going to navigate it for you or that if I do X, I default to get Y. That's not how it works. And I think when you look at things sometimes from the outside before you experience it, you think like, oh, okay, like from a process perspective, right? Or a formulaic perspective, if I do one and I add two and this is what I get. And unfortunately, early on in my career, I, you know, for, I should I should say, fortunately, early on in my career, I learned that wasn't the case. If if you're talking to uh, or mentoring someone, because you mentioned, you know, talking to younger people, how do you outline this idea of understanding that you own your career? Like, what would you tell them to do? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I always say is that um, one, I'm going to be very transparent, and two, I'm going to share with you the lessons I learned so you don't have to go through the journey to have to always learn them first, if that makes sense. Because it was sometimes I kind of felt like it'd be great if someone kind of told you this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, and so what I tell them is that 
one, they need to be very clear on what the expectations are of them because it's somewhat of the goalpost, right? You need to know where that goalpost is because if someone's moving it on you and you don't know that, then you'll never get to that. You'll never get to hit it. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things I stress. I think the other thing I stress too is just a matter of be mindful of who you connect with and that you are having those conversations. You are bring, building your brand and you're getting out there because I think at times if you are heads down, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to do my job. Doing your job, and if you think about that, that word job, doing your job does not necessarily translate to getting your career where you want it to be because your job and your career are a little bit different, right? Your job is a part of your career and there's a bigger picture that you're trying to go after that you can't lose sight of that. I hear that and understand that, but let's even take it deeper. Like what about when you think about the dynamics of gender and ethnicity, like in your case Mm -hmm. and owning the career, do you, do you find there's another layer of consideration for you and thought process? Cause I feel like for me, there is like, I'm always conscious of my gender and my race in the mm-hmm. context of the people around me. Like when I'm at a table and I notice myself as the only it's, mm-hmm. there are thoughts that come to my head, like, okay, make sure this, make sure that. So let's talk about that dynamic with those two pieces, gender and ethnicity, when you're understanding how to own your career. Yeah, there are a lot of different points where I've either been the most diverse person at the table, the female person at the table, the youngest person at the table. And it's kind of trial and error in that because I think sometimes when we put that pressure on us is like, I am the only X. So I need to make sure I do not fail in this opportunity. Yes. I think at times we get in our heads where then we start tripping up, right? You're so focused on getting the words right out of your mouth that sometimes you start stumbling upon them. And growing up, when it came to the looks that my family and I would get, because we're different, right? We're going somewhere traditionally uh, very conservative or we're treated a little bit differently when we get those stares. I think growing up, um, I was one where I didn't always pay attention to that. Now, my siblings would be acutely aware and we would talk about that. And then over time, like I noticed it more and more, especially because I think it was just me being more observant, to be honest with you. And I share that because in some times, in some aspects of my professional career, I may not notice it until after the fact. And so, for example, I was in a meeting and it was all male leaders. Mm. And I came out of it and I was like, wait a minute, I was the only female leader in that meeting. Did you realize after or while you were in it or what point? I realized it in it and I noticed it, but then honestly, Hanifa, I had to switch gears because then if I were to put that pressure on mm. myself, knowing myself, yes. it would bring on those insecurities. Yes. And so I think, yes, there, there are times where we are mindful of it. A hundred percent. And we see that. But I think in those times where we see it, again, for me, at least, I know sometimes when I put that pressure on myself, mm-hmm. that counters my intention. And so going back to that advice, kind of my mom gave me focus that energy on doing well. Yeah. I think it's like, I'm just going to do my thing because I have to believe that if I've been successful today and continue to be knock on wood, that it's because there's a piece of it that is myself and that I'm managing. And so from that standpoint, 
if you know you're going to tense up more because you are putting that pressure on yourself, as hard as it is, um, as hard as hard as it's, it's sorry, it's easier to say, let it go. But that's what you kind of have to do. Yeah. Just focus on being the best version of you. Yeah. The best version of you is that biracial female for me, right? Mm. But I'm not going to lead with I need to make sure that I'm presenting X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Because then I think sometimes we we end up tripping ourselves up. Yeah. Now, that's not to say water down who you are. That is not it at all, right? I'm saying for me, the best version of me is being myself. Myself, guess what? I'm Cuban. I am Chinese. I am a female. I'm also sometimes informal. Sometimes I can be very <laughs> upfront, right? And But that's me. And I think from that standpoint, what I make sure in those meetings is, again, to be the best version of myself, but then I also want to make sure I'm doing things that help others in my position to coach them, to give them opportunities, to highlight who they are, because I always want to make sure we're spreading kind of this message of inclusivity. Just because you're different, guess what? You probably are going to make something better to the table because you have a different mindset or a different perspective than I do, right? That's about inclusivity. And I think it's important to make sure that we we consider that. Now, I also would add that I probably wasn't always like that, though. In the beginning of my career, I was actually, and as a female, pegged with the dreaded C word of needing to focus on my confidence. Mm. Now, you put the word confidence with a man, it is not a derailer. You put the word confidence with a female, oh my gosh, it's a derailer. We have a really big issue here. And I noticed that in conversations with male peers, I'm like, God, and I would coach them. I'm like, you cannot say this person has a confidence issue. If they have a leadership style and they need to be more assertive, if they need to speak up more, if they need to be more visible, if they need to focus on presence, those are the things. But to try and say you're not confident, Mm -hmm. that almost sometimes becomes the debilitating part of it. And so one of the directors, what he said to me was, you know, I noticed you show up differently when you're around these audiences and these audiences were with senior level people. And he said, why is that? And I said, because I don't think I'm the smartest one in the room then. Mm. And it's also because I may be the youngest, maybe because I have a different perspective. And what we were working on was how do you overcome that? So you don't do that in those sessions. And quite honestly, the way I was able to do that was just come across and like, look, it's a human being at the end of the day, take that away from it. Because I think at times too, when we say I'm the only female at this table, right. Or like, if I'm the only diverse person at this table, why are we letting them make it uncomfortable for us? Why are we letting them put the pressure on us? And, And that's kind of why I have the mindset I do when it comes to it is that I don't put that pressure on myself because my pressure is focused on being the best I can be, which is all of those things. And two, I'm going to make sure that I have the opportunity to help others, whether it's coaching directly or in conversations with other and educating them on some of these things. Um, Another one that I see sometimes is that you have a quiet type about you, right? And I think depending on your upbringing and the ethnicity, like Mm -hmm. I can see why you see that, Mm -hmm. but Again, like it was because we were raised very much to respect authority and respect elders and some maybe more so than others in their cultures. And we have to recognize that that doesn't make them any less effective when it comes to leadership. They just maybe go about it a little bit differently. But I know when I see that, I need to then coach them a little bit more on being visible so other people can see their leadership impact. Yeah, yeah. 
I like that. I mean, this idea that you started with was with switching gears is definitely something that I ascribe to because when I go in the rooms, there was a time when I was so conscious of the difference mm-hmm. and it would make me stumble. And it just mm-hmm. got to a point, especially when I got into leadership, I realized I had to snap out of that because, you know, that insecurity comes across to the team mm-hmm. and then it affects kind of what I need to do. So yeah, I have to kind of get in my head like, okay, I'm here. I belong here. Now let's get mm-hmm. this. You know what I mean? I think that that goes back to the concept of boxes, right? And I think I shared with you is that people tend to put people in boxes. And I think some of the times where we struggle is when we put ourselves in a box that yes. maybe we think we're doing that because that's where they might be doing to yes. us. Yes. But we have to make sure that the box you're putting yourself in is your own box. It is the box because of who you are and the values you have to bring to the table. Don't put yourself in other people's boxes. <laughs> you can't. Girl, if I did, can I just tell you what box I'd be in? <laughs> what box would you Again, be in? I would be, you know, it's funny though. And I think that's kind of the fun thing though, in some ways, right? Where it's like, okay, you think I'm not, I'm going to show you wrong. I'm going to prove mm-hmm. you wrong. I'm different than that. Right. And it goes back to like the, you know, the story growing up, like someone felt like I looked more, more Spanish. Yep. What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and I, it's funny because I've had people actually put me in a box of a different ethnicity altogether because they would take pieces of information in terms of where I vacation or where I was meeting my family and they just assumed. Uh, and it was like, no. And it's an, it's an awkward conversation sometimes when it's like, oh, I just assumed you were this. And it's like, no, no. Mm-hmm. It, it's tricky and it can become a little bit frustrating. I mean, I think more so when I was younger, it was that for me. Um, now that I'm older and even raising children, I've learned to develop a certain level of patience because I mm-hmm. recognize just as much as I had to understand, folks are also trying to understand. Um, yeah. And so I guess I just appreciate when folks are really just trying to understand from a sincere place, but, um, well, it, no, I was gonna say, it's funny about boxes because, um, there was an experience I had where I was, I was the younger one and not just younger because of age. Um, and I age gracefully now I, it's younger because of my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so happened. I was in a role that afforded me those opportunities really early on in my career. And can you believe I had someone tell me that I should try and appear older? Mm. And it was funny because in that experience, mm-hmm. I wore my glasses because mm-hmm. she said I looked a little bit older in my, my glasses. I wore my glasses. I wore a different type of style dress. Um, and can I tell you that was the best presentation I ever gave according to this person? Because I've altered my presence to match what she was expecting to see. Nothing changed. Content, who I am, that did not change. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back into biases and stereotypes and and expectations. Wow. Now, let's go into the networking aspect. You touched on this earlier and how you had to really open yourself up to the real true idea of networking. Because when people first hear networking, they think, okay, I've got to schedule and go to an event and have a drink in my hand and try to get some FaceTime with someone who's supposed to be important or can do something for me. How 
have you redefined networking for you and your experience? Um, it's something I will say in element, I still struggle sometimes with today because growing up, we were raised not to inconvenience or impose on people. And sometimes when I feel like I need to meet with you because I'm looking to do this in my career, I'm looking for that, I'm asking something of you. And earlier on in my career, the way I kind of made peace with that is, okay, I'm going to make sure when I meet with this person, I find what that connection is to make it genuine and authentic because I always want to make sure people don't take me as something other than who I am. And I don't want people to think that I'm just trying to meet with them for the sake of meeting. Because you you know when someone's meeting with you and you're like, you want something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what I did earlier on in my career. And then at some point, quite honestly, it ended up switching gears. And it's because I've had conversations with mentors of mine where it was like, I knew networking was a very critical piece in managing my career. And I will be very transparent. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to come across inauthentic. And so if I don't have that kind of connection up front, like what is the best way? And what two people shared with me was, well, Melissa, they expect that at this level, at certain mm -hmm. levels. They expect people are meeting with them because they're looking for something from a career perspective or advice or this or that. And it's funny because I then coach people when they ask me too for advice on networking and expanding their network. And it's like, well, you know, fortunately we're in a, in a company that we're just friendly people. We want to help people. Right. And I think in that case, people are always happy to meet with you. And I think more now than ever, I've, I've had to make peace with that and kind of not let those values that I have interfere um, or prohibit me from from really expanding it. And I will say, I still am working on the networking aspect. But again, for me, it's a matter of how to make that connection real. Yeah. And if there's a question I have, own it. Like there were questions and conversations I had where it's, hey, I'm getting advice. I need to expand my network. Yeah. And I'm doing that with this meeting. But how do I really make that into something? And, and that even ends up being the, the starting conversation line and we go from there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, um, I'm good with talking and engaging with people. I just don't like to do it if I don't have to, you know, and I have yeah. the same thought around, I don't want to ask people for things. I don't want them to think I'm being a burden, you know, mm -hmm. um, but business school shifted my perspective in a yes. lot of ways um, yes. because I had this preconceived notion about what networking looked like. And part of it was because I worked in politics, but being in business school, I got to see another side of it, kind of like, dare I say, the fun side of networking. Mm -hmm. But it really helped kind of disarm my, my views around networking. You know what I mean? So to me now, it means something different. Yeah, I would say networking with business school, right? To your point, exactly. And that's why I was agreeing. I'm like, I was exactly there, right? We, we, we have the focus on academics and the networking is like, okay, I'm in my suit and I'm schmoozing and there's, you know, the random drink in my hand that is now melting, but I'm carrying it from table to table and, you know, having this conversation. What I so appreciated about our group that we were with and, and being in that environment was it really felt more effortless to network because yes. it was building those real connections. Yes. And 
those real relationships on what we can learn from each other. Like it was just this environment where it was like, I can learn so much more from you just by engaging with you. And I think to your point that has impacted how I view networking as well, because I make sure that in that, as well as, you know, when I look at some of my mentors and some of my advisors and the people I'm meeting, it's really like, how do you form that kind of bond with someone else now outside of that environment um, because I don't ever want to just be the name on an Outlook invite that put time on your calendar mm-hmm. to randomly talk to you about X. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm going to meet with you, it's because I'm coming to you for advice. I want to hear your story or there's something I think I can help with you or your team. Mm-hmm. 2021 is hopefully going to be the year where a lot of things shift from, I guess, um, I guess what the national perspective, um, the social sentiment and all the mm-hmm. things that happened in 2020, we can almost say good riddance, we hope. But we hope. for you, what is something you wanna be sure you can say good riddance to for 2021? I think for me, it would be good riddance to the negative vibe. And I say that because there's been a lot of things that happened from a personal perspective and then just what's going on externally, right, in the world that, have weighed pretty heavily on my heart or um, or me in general. And I would say that we could talk about this another time, just in terms of like mental health and, and being mindful of that mindfulness in general. But I think what I've tried to do was for myself is really start looking at ways to bring that balance more so into it because you can't just be in this environment where it's all doom and gloom and bad news, right? And so when there's that one good thing that happens and then immediately the bad thing happens, it's like, oh, great, here we go again. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like the theme of 2020 that I am hoping goes out the window next year. Exactly. I am Melissa Kung, and I am disrupting balance by being my true self. Thank you for listening to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. Hey, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're not following me yet, find me at Disrupting Balance on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And guess what? I'm on Clubhouse at Hanifa Barnes ESQ. And if you want free tools or any and all things Disrupting Balance, check out the website www.disruptingbalance.com. Talk soon.